All right, while everybody's taking their seat, a couple of announcements. Just because every now and then I like to tell you all what's really happening in the world that you'll never hear from anybody else. Well, you'll hear from a few other people, but you don't hear from the major media, is that there has now been, John and I were just talking about this because he goes down to teach the Bible in the Harris County Jail, but I found out a week ago, but it's been three weeks since there's been a mumps outbreak in the Harris County Jail and we aren't told about it by our local media because it's coming from all of the illegals that have come in across the border, and they're bringing all these diseases with them. And so this is another reason why we need a wall and we need to shut down the border because we need to... National security isn't just about protecting the country from terrorists. That's part of it, but it's also protecting the citizens of this country from all of these diseases. And so we... Um, unfortunately have people in government who do not care about American people at all. And I don't care what you say, they ought to be fired. And uh, they are destructive to this nation. And so this is terrible. And so these people that we have in this church who work at the jail aren't able to go down and teach the Bible. People who work there have to be, you know, very careful. Everything's quarantined. So that's a real, a real problem. All right, this weekend we have a very busy Saturday. We have men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning at 7.30, and the deacons will meet at 9 o'clock. Then in the evening at 6 p.m., we'll have our family night and film uh, Railway Children. So there's a sign-up sheet out in the fellowship hall, and you can sign up out there, and that will give us a full time with the church to get to know other people. Continue to pray for Camp Arete for Vacation Bible School, for prep school teachers, and then uh, the tours that are coming up that are on the website. This morning around 2 or 3 o'clock, as I sent out in the announcement today, the Lord sent his angels to take Ursula Sachs' camp home to be with him. Some of you know who she was. I got a great email today from Jeff. Jeff Phipps grew up in his mother taught him all of the curricula, curriculum that, that Ursula wrote for Baraka Church, curriculum that all the baby boomers, they were writing this in the mid-50s all the way through the, through the 60s, that, that all the baby boomers grew up with at Baraka Church. It has a remarkable, uh, remarkable history and background because she was born into a Jewish family and they had to escape Germany uh, with the rise of the Nazis. She was there as a 14-year-old and had clear memories of the of Kristallnacht and other things that happened before they left Germany. And they were able to uh, escape to, to Shanghai. A lot of people don't know about Shanghai Jews. You can Google or go to YouTube and find a number of documentaries about the Shanghai Jews. And it was a large community. But while she was there, she learned to uh, trade, as a dental hygienist, and she also met her future husband, uh, Ian Kemp. She was my first grade Sunday school teacher, and he was my third or fourth grade Sunday school teacher. And so they've always had a special place uh, in my my mind. And today I got a call and was asked to do her uh, do her service. She's been going to uh, South. I mean to uh, Sugarland Bible Church. For a number of years, and Andy's out of town, and so 
he was unable to do it. So the service will be next Thursday afternoon, the 27th of June at 2 p.m. at George H. Lewis Funeral Home at 1010 Bearing. So please be in prayer for that service. Her aunt, excuse me, Ursula's sister is still alive, 91 and not saved. And her two daughters are alive and live all live in Houston and they are not saved. And I think that just about everybody else at that service is going to be saved. So you're going to have three unsaved secular Jews surrounded by probably over a hundred members of the body of Christ. So this is really going to be you know, they've heard the gospel a lot over the years, so this is really going to be an important time, so please be in prayer for that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and prepare to study the word. And so you'll have a few moments to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins uh, to God, and instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful, thankful for your grace, your goodness, for all that you have provided for us, that you are the almighty creator God of the universe. You are a God who is beyond our comprehension. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are your ways our ways. Yet nevertheless, you have created us to know you, to understand you. You have given us the capabilities, the capacity to understand your word, your revelation uh, to us. And though we are uh, harmed significantly by sin, we know that you, through God the Holy Spirit, enable us to understand your revelation, that we might come to know you, to walk with you, to live our life in intimate fellowship with you, that we may enjoy that relationship, recognizing all that you are and all that you've provided for us. Now, Father, as we study tonight, help us to understand the essence of what we believe, that what our Christian belief is grounded upon, that we might further uh, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, we are studying in First Peter. We are studying first verse still, and tonight we want to try to answer an important question. The question is, what is Christianity? The reason that we're answering this question is because in Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter says, 
the second part of the verse, that he is writing to those who have obtained or received like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm taking a little time to talk about the importance of this faith that is made here, this reference. And so in the lower right-hand corner, we have the noun that is used here, pistis, which refers to the, it's a noun, but it refers to the act of faith, the act of believing, uh, or the act of trusting. It also relates to that which is believed. In other words, a, a body of teaching, a body of what is believed. A, a, it's a content word, so it's talking about a set of beliefs that a person has. And as I pointed out last time, there's a lot of similarity between Second Peter and Jude. In Second Peter, Peter warns his readers that false teachers will come. Jude warns his readers, probably the same people, that these false teachers have already come. And so to Peter's audience, he challenges them at the conclusion to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is grace and knowledge uh, that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. The genitive of the Lord Jesus Christ applies to both of those uh, nouns, so it's grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and knowledge that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how we grow. That is how we mature as believers. And so the faith that we hold to is a a body of knowledge. It is uh, something we are to learn so that we can so that we can grow. The warning in Second Peter is that false teachers are coming, and they will seek to destroy your faith. That is to disrupt what you believe and to teach you wrong things, false things, in order to promote. Uh, a, another worldview or another religion or another uh, a, a different faith. And so these are the enemies of Christianity. We have enemies that come from within the church. Paul warns, as we'll see in a second, about those who will rise up within the ranks, wolves in sheep's clothing. But here these are those who it seems come from outside, but it can be both. We have enemies outside the church and enemies inside the church, but we are to know what this body of belief is. What is it? Jude, in his opening uh, opening to his epistle, says that believers are to contend. That means to wrestle, to fight for something. It's worth fighting for. Truth is worth fighting for. Truth is not something that is relative. Truth is not something that is optional. Truth is something that is specific, and it refers to an absolute body of information. And beyond that, it involves application, but we'll get into that. So he says, contend earnestly, that is to strive or wrestle, to fight for the faith. Now, Jude uses an article there in the Greek, and that indicates that he is talking about a specific body of knowledge. There's a, 
I'm not going to get into it, but there's a wide range of meaning to the use or the absence of an article in Greek. Notice I didn't call it a definite article because in Greek there's no indefinite article, so you don't need to use the word definite or indefinite. You only have the article. And it's interesting that sometimes when you don't have the article, it is more specific usually qualitative, than the presence of the article, whereas in English it's different from that, and that's led some groups to some heretical uh, conclusions. So in Peter, there's no article because he's emphasizing the quality of the faith, and here Jude uses the article to emphasize this specific body of beliefs. Paul warns about false teachers in Acts 20, 28 to 31, He tells these leaders of the church to take heed and to watch because savage wolves will come in among you. That is, they come from outside. And also, verse 30, from among yourselves men will rise up. So there are those who rise up from within the church and those who attack from outside the church. But the question I posed last time as we got into this is, what is the body of what we believe? What is this content? What is it? When you boil it down, what is the essence of Christianity? And that is, as I've said from the language used, it emphasizes that there is a specific body of beliefs. Both Peter and Jude believe that there is a specific body of beliefs that are uh, Christianity and that there are other beliefs that are not Christianity. And if you include those other beliefs in what you think Christianity teaches, it's no longer Christianity. Now, if you listen to those who preach and teach and make comments on Facebook or other social media, you'll discover today that there are a lot of people who put forth a lot of very different and conflicting and contradictory ideas about what Christianity is. There are people who think that Jesus loves everybody, and so if you want to be a homosexual, then that's okay. If you want to be adulterous, that's okay. If you want to be uh, a criminal, that's okay, uh, because Jesus just loves you. And so for them, the ultimate uh, ethic is the love of God. And in their way of thinking, the love of God is inherently contradictory to the biblical idea of righteousness or justice as they look at the Old Testament as a mean, judicial, punishing, condemning God. But what we'll find out as we look at the Bible is that's a misrepresentation of the God of the Old Testament as well as how God is presented in the New Testament. So if you listen to these people, you have such a wide array of beliefs that are set forth as part of Christianity that it's hard to believe that many of these people are even talking about the same Christianity. Are they talking about the same thing? Are they talking about uh, the same body of beliefs? Are they even reading the same Bible? And the discrepancy in the approach to Christianity, and these approaches to Christianity have been with us throughout much of Christianity, but what we're witnessing today is on a much, much grander scale, 
And it's mostly been around for about the last 125 to 150 years uh, as a result of the rise of the, of, of the what was called 19th century German rationalism or, or what is more commonly known as just liberal theology. It has its roots in the Enlightenment, that period that began around uh, 1600 and continued into the early 1800s and gave birth then to some other movements in the 19th century as it kind of morphed into some, uh, some other uh, approaches. So this then began to impact and affect Christian churches as they drifted away from a theocentric worldview where a triune God, a Trinitarian God, was at the center of their thinking to a more anthropocentric or man-centered worldview, then they began to drift away from the view that the Bible is an objective revelation given uh, supernaturally by a creator God. And it came to the point in the early part of the 19th century that almost every denomination had split between conservatives and liberals in what became known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. About the only denomination that did not split were the Southern Baptists, and they fought off a real attack by by modernists in in the 1970s, and yet they're going through that same battle again because ultimately all of these different views will attack the whole concept of biblical authority. One Presbyterian minister and editor of the of a, a journal called the Presbyterian Journal wrote a book in 1946, and there he stated that there were conceptions of Christianity so radically different that if any of them is true, many of the other ones must be necessarily false. So you can be exposed to a wide variety of beliefs that are classified as Christianity culturally, but they contradict each other. And so how do you know what is true Christianity? What criteria must you use? And so all of them come from different vantage points. You have those who set an ultimate standard based on rationalism or the use of reason alone, others on the basis of empiricism, others on the basis of mysticism and new insights into Scripture. So you have cults that have arisen because of so-called new revelations such as Mormonism or Christian science. You have the attacks from the uh, rationalists that claim that there are no miracles uh, in the Bible, that there's no such thing as true supernaturalism, that this is all contrary uh, to reason. And so that became the basis, really, of what became known as modernism. And modernism sort of reigned until the late 1800s, early 19th century, and by then the cracks in modernism uh, began to be pretty obvious. And even though you and I did not hear too much about postmodernism until we got into the late 20th century, it, the word was actually used as, as early as the first decade or so of the 20th century. 
and but it did not manifest itself. It didn't get out of academia and the elite intellectual circles until you got into the 1960s. And you'll find a lot of people who will say that it seems like the world really changed as a result of the Supreme Court rule in the early 60s that took took prayer out of the schools. You also had uh, several other things that took place. You had the assassination of John Kennedy. You had a shift to uh, Johnson's uh, whole approach to the uh, war on poverty, several other things that transpired at that time, and so people look at that as sort of a benchmark. The reality is is that the things that sort of clustered together in the early 60s were the result of a shift that started about 60 or 70 years earlier, and it was finally manifesting itself uh, in a broad cultural way by the, by, by the early, early 60s. And so that also led to a shift in how people viewed Christianity as just one option among many, even though those ideas had always been been around. Now it had a new, uh, a whole new uh, uh, context. So that led to the development of postmodernism. It's interesting. A few years ago, I went back and was rereading some of Francis Schaeffer's early works, Escape from Reason. He is there, and he is not silent, and. Uh, the God who is there, and I thought this this could have been written yesterday about today's culture. He was, among many others, extremely perceptive in recognizing the this philosophical shift that ha- had now made itself manifest by the early to mid uh, '60s. So as he was addressing it then, it's just as relevant, just as current today, and. Modernism, reason, and logic and truth were still held to exist. It was important that we could use reason and logic and we could arrive at truth. But what happened was World War I. The results of rationalism and empiricism in modernism were basically were destroyed on the fields of Flanders. Everybody thought we would get better and better, culture would get better and better, man was improving himself, and we would bring in a secular utopia, and then it w- the young men of Europe were slaughtered uh, with the machine guns and the chemical warfare and bombs of, of uh, World War One. So that pretty much left people in a despondent state, and so the result was the rise of postmodernism. But Peter and Jude warn that there is absolute truth because there are false teachers. Anytime you ascribe a group of, as being false, that means you have to have a standard by which you are defining what is true and what is, what is false. And so it is important for us to understand that there is a body of truth that is absolute and that we can ground our lives upon that. And so the writers of the New Testament clearly taught and proclaimed that Christianity involved a specific set of beliefs and that the rejection or distortion of those beliefs was truly anti-Christian and destructive of the church that those who would affirm those beliefs uh, could not possibly affirm biblical Christianity. To even speak about Christianity 
we automatically invoke the name of Christ or the title of Christ. For Christianity was a term that was applied to those who were followers of Jesus of Nazareth, who by uh, by the mid-40s was identified as Jesus the Messiah, which is Christ or Christos in the Greek language. Now, to know anything about Christ, uh, who Jesus of Nazareth was and what he taught and what he did, involves that you have a source of knowledge. Now, one of the fun little things that liberals did back in the late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, was to investigate what they called the historical Jesus. Albert Schweitzer is one of the most famous, wrote a book called In Search of the Historical Jesus. Now, they're not looking for the biblical Jesus. They're looking for what they think is the true Jesus, that biblical Jesus is just a lot of mythology and legend that doesn't say anything about the real Jesus of Nazareth. So they're using a criteria to evaluate truth that is apart from the Bible and apart from Scripture. But as Christians, we know that that if it were not for the 27 books of the New Testament, that we would not even have Christianity, that Christianity is grounded on what is said, what is taught, what is described in those 27 books of the New Testament. And those writings are grounded in a historical reality, that the Bible isn't just some book on philosophy. It's not a book on ethics. It is a book that is grounded in specific, the specific lives of historical individuals and events that occurred that can, for the most part, be validated historically. In contrast, you have the claims of, let's take, for example, Mormonism. Mormonism talks about a lot of different things that happened in the Western Hemisphere, a lot of locations and people and places, none of which has ever been discovered, validated, or are vindicated. So uh, the Bible isn't that way. It is historical, but the history doesn't validate it. It simply uh, confirms it because the Bible is the Word of God. It carries its own self-authenticating uh, authority with it. When God speaks, nobody says, well, who are you? When Isaiah shows up in heaven, has the vision of the throne room of God in Isaiah 6, he falls on his face in front of God because he knows he's in the presence of God. There is a self-authentication to God's vision, uh, uh, theophany. He knows who he's, who he's talking. When, when God speaks from the uh, burning bush to Moses, Moses doesn't say, what'd you say? What's this about taking my shoes off? Do I really need to do that? He knows he has to do it because there is the inherent authority that comes with the voice of God. And so when we look at the New Testament and we ask the question, what is Christianity? We know that it comes from the 27 books of the New, uh, of the New Testament. But... Since the late 19th century, these teachings have been infiltrated by a lot of different ideas that are contradictory to what has been said there. But in the previous 18 centuries, from the time of the writings of the New Testament until the rise of modern uh, liberalism, rationalism, empiricism, and the attacks on Christianity starting in the early 1800s, the core of what people believed 
as Christians, even if they were Protestant or they were Catholic, they had differences, but some of the core beliefs were still present. And so this has, this has changed. In an essay called What is the Christian Re- Religion, a Yale professor in the mid-20th century said that the redemption by the blood of Christ as a sacrifice for sin is essential to Christianity, but it's contrary to reason. See, his view is that reason is, see, his view of reason is totally autonomous. So it's irrational that someone would die for everybody's sins, that, that one death could cover everybody's sins. So for him, it's it not only irrational, but he went on to say because it is essentially unchristian because it is opposed to the principles of sound morality. See, he said it's non-Christian. So where, where's he getting a value system in order to judge that? Well, because in liberalism, your values are independent of any revelation from God. You're going to decide on the basis of your own emotion and your own reason what you think is right or wrong, and then you're going to use that to judge God. That's the essence of all these different views of what Christianity is. And so for those who were like Macintosh, the ultimate authority is not the Bible. The ultimate authority is their own reason, their own independently developed system of morality. And if you were to ask him where he derived his system of morality, he would have said reason. Because under modernism, reason was king. Reason determined everything, but reason was like the house built on shifting sand. It could answer a lot of questions, but there were ultimate questions that it could not answer. And for those men, supernaturalism was something that they rejected. They had never seen anybody perform a miracle. They had never seen anybody walk on water. They had never seen anybody multiply fish and loaves. So therefore, it couldn't happen. That that was not empirically verifiable. Nobody had ever seen it happen. So therefore, it is irrational, and it could not happen and must never have happened. And that was the view that was at the root of Darwinism, it's at the root of a lot of, the, of, of sociology developing from Herbert Spencer and Augusta Comte and others, and it was at the, view, at the core of Marx's views of economics. And it's still the view of Marxism, whether economic, cultural, or political. Marxism today has morphed because of the influence of postmodernism, but it's still the same system that denies objective supernaturalism. But the whole of biblical Christianity, and we could even say the whole of Judeo, uh, of biblical Judeo Christianity, is grounded upon not only rationalism, but a rationalism that is subservient to the revelation of an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent deity. And that is the creator God of the New Testament. So the foundation has to be God. The foundation of every faith, every philosophy rests on some authority. It's either the authority of reason, the authority of experience, the authority of human, finite human reasoning to interpret reality, or it's grounded upon an outside authority that has revealed information. So the foundation has to be God. 
We start with God and not with Scripture because God is the author of Scripture. So we always have to start with the presupposition of the existence of God. Now, when we look at the Scripture, the God of the New Testament is based on the revelation of the God of the Old Testament. And I'm going to simplify this to four key ideas related to God. Who is God? So when we start with answering the question, who is Christianity, we have to start with defining God. Who is the God of Christianity? And that goes back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's four things that come out of the early part of the Hebrew Scriptures, the early part of, of Genesis, that God is the creator God. This is distinct from any other view of God in the ancient Near East. God created everything ex nihilo. God is distinct from his creation. That bleeds into the second one because the concept of holiness emphasizes the uniqueness or distinctiveness of God. The idea of God's moral perfection is secondary. That the, but the primary meaning of the word is unique or distinct. He is the creator God who is distinguished from creation. But there is another aspect to that, and I developed this in my notes and didn't go back and plug it into this. It's the creator-communicator God. He's the creator-communicator God. What is the first thing that we see God do in the, in the Bible? Speak. Then God said. And that is foundational because in, in liberalism, what, and, and in many of these false religions that have come along over the century, since the first century, there's a denial of the biblical view of revelation that God speaks. And it's not just that God speaks, but that God speaks in a way that we can understand him because God created us to be able to understand him. God just not, oh, golly gee, there's this accidental electrical discharge that occurred and something happened down on this planet. Now I have these sentient beings and let's see if I can talk to them and see if they can understand me. And that's how most people approach it. But God created human beings for a specific purpose. He created them in his image and likeness so that they would be able to understand what God said and that they would be able to, um, they would be able to uh, understand, communicate, and develop a relationship with God. So this is the significance. You go back, I mentioned Francis Schaeffer a minute ago. In his, I think it was the second of his trilogy, or no, it's the third of his trilogy, he is there and he is not silent. He is there means God exists. He is not silent means he communicates. In his existence, he is the creator God, and in his speaking, he is the God who communicates. And so we can understand God and we can understand his nature, we may not understand him comprehensively, but we can understand him to the degree that he has revealed himself to us. He is the communicator. And so this also implies that God is one who 
uh, the, I mean, the Christianity, the Judeo-Christianity is based on historical reality because he is the creator. He's the creator of history, and he acts within history, and he talks within history. So therefore, history is inherent to biblical Judeo-Christianity. A lot of people will start here and say, first of all, God is, or, or Christianity is a historical religion. Before that, you have to start with God, and then you can understand what the significance of history, because if God isn't the creator God who communicates, then we can't understand anything about history. God communicates to us. He acts in history, but then he tells us what those acts mean. He doesn't leave us hanging to try to interpret those things for our own, but that's what liberalism does. They come along and say, well, we can assign meaning to the resurrection. No, God told us what the resurrection meant. They say, we can assign meaning to the fall. No, God assigned meaning to the fall. He's the creator God, the God of history, and he tells us what things mean. So that when we come to passages in the New Testament about Christianity, we can have an accurate understanding of history that it is objective and that things happen the way the Bible says that they happen. And 1 Corinthians 15 is an example of this. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, Moreover, brethren, I, that's the Apostle Paul, declare to you the gospel which I proclaimed to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, you who hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, what is it that he communicated to them when he was there? He said, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So it's a set body of information. That's what's implied by that statement. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, what are the Scriptures that he's talking about? It's the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Scriptures. That Christ died uh, uh, for our sins according to the Scripture. So he's appealing to the Old Testament scripture as the authority and that Christ had to die on the, according to the standard of what was revealed, the meaning, the purpose, and significance of that sacrifice on the cross. That when you come to people like McIntosh, I referred to a minute ago, that say that the sacrifice of Christ paying the penalty for sins is irrational, it flies in the face of revelation. Revelation, you have the historical event of the crucifixion, and then you have God defining and interpreting its significance and what it means. It is the basis for our redemption. In verse 4, Paul goes on to say that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Christianity is a Bible-based religion. It is based on a literal interpretation of those passages, that the passages that talk about the death of Christ, the passages that talk about his burial and resurrection are passages that are interpreted literally according to a historical grammatical hermeneutic. They are not people reading into the Bible what they wanted to say. It has a set and specific meaning. And then we have this historical validation. He was he rose from the dead on the third day, and then he was seen by Cephas, or Cephas, actually is the way you would pronounce that, 
and that's another name. That's the Aramaic name for Peter. Then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, so it's not some sort of group hallucination, of whom the greater part remain to the present. So if you want to check me out, check out my facts, you can go talk to them because most of the 500 are still alive and you can have eyewitness report after another uh, verifying the resurrection of Christ. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. This is James, the half-brother of the humanity of Jesus. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So the first part is this emphasis on God as the creator, communicator, God. He is the God of history, and he is the God who has spoken. And when he speaks, when he does things, they are within history, and therefore they can be be validated. The second thing is that he is the holy God. You don't have anything comparable to that in any false or any pagan religion, any polytheistic religion, any animistic or spiritist religion, in any philosophy that compares to the holiness of God or the fact that God is the creator God. These make the God of Judeo-Christianity, the God of the Old Testament, distinct. He is the holy God. That word holy means uh, unique, one of a kind, or distinct. You can't find a a parallel to God. There's no absolute analogy that you can find to communicate about God because he is one of a kind. Now, passage that we go to as a uh, key text on this is in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. God is speaking to the Israelites and he says, for I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. That word for consecrate is a cognate to the word holy. It means, in the English use, also use the word sanctify. And it is the idea of make yourself distinct and separate. That means there has to be a purification for sin. And this was accomplished through the, through the offerings and through the washings. You shall therefore consecrate yourself and you shall be holy, meaning you will be set apart to my service. You will now be distinct from that which is common. And he says, you need to be holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. And so when God says that, he's not talking about the fact that he's now become free from sin because he never sinned, but he is unique and distinct unlike anything else in creation. And, but that concept of relating to God's holiness implies that there should be an ethical difference in the way the Israelite lives. The same is true for the believer today. Because we are to be holy because God is holy, the next command is, neither shall you defile yourself with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And that goes back to the uh, to the Mosaic Law and the laws related to not being, not touching or being involved with that which is un, defined as uh, ritually unclean. He explains why in verse 45, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt. So his holiness, that's the second aspect that we were talking about, is now connected directly to the third aspect, which is redemption. Okay? 
So we've moved from the fact that he's a creator, communicator God, and as he communicates, he tells us how to interpret things and interpret the events that happen. And part of that involves what he has done in removing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. That's tied to his holiness, his distinctiveness, and that indicates that he is the God who redeems them. That's the third characteristic for the God of the Bible. He is a redeeming God, and we have to let the Bible define redemption. And we'll talk about that in a a little bit. He pays the price for our sin. He is the redeeming God. And in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, we read, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's the uh, historical redemption from slavery to, to the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now, this redemption isn't the spiritual redemption. This is used as an analogy for spiritual redemption because spiritual redemption frees us from the slavery of sin. This is a redemption from the slavery to the Egyptians. And so bringing you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, rescuing them from their bondage are all uh, synonyms, synonymous concepts for understanding the deliverance for uh, the deliverance with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now we see this same thing and the same language used when we get into the New Testament exposition of Christianity. In verse 23 of Romans 3, we have the ethical problem. The ethical problem is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how wonderful you are. It doesn't matter how much you're able to, um, to improve your, your character, how much you're able to reform your, your uh, behavior, all have sinned. See, modern man says that the issue is that we just we can make ourselves better because we're not inherently corrupt. But what the Bible teaches is that when man sinned, they came under the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. They became polluted and corrupted by sin, and so they can't reform themselves. They can't make themselves better. And it, because they can't make themselves better, they can't make society better. They can't, they can't really bring about social justice because social justice implies the idea that you can bring in a perfect society, and you can't do it. It's because it de- social justice denies the reality of sin. We can bring in justice, we can bring in righteousness, but it's limited, and it is on the basis of the laws and government, but we cannot make all people equal. Uh, that is not possible because all have sinned and fall short of the essence of God, the character of God. That's the term glory of God is a is an idiom for God's essence, his righteousness and his justice. Verse 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here we see that they, there is an ethical problem, which is sin. 
But God in righteousness has provided a perfect solution, and that is the payment of the penalty so that we can be justified freely. And the verses that come after that talk about how God's righteousness and justice are satisfied in in propitiation. So that enables the fourth characteristic is for God to be a forgiving God. This is denied by those who have a uh, a philosophy or of of reason or uh, even irrationalism, because they they focus on a a misconstruction of what it means to be uh, just or righteous. In a forgiving God, God is a God of grace. This is the application of His character of love. So God is still a God of love in the Old Testament even though th- that word per se isn't used that much about about God. he is a, His actions demonstrate that he is a God of love. We come to Exodus 34, 6. The Lord appears to Moses and the Israelites. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Look at the attributes that are there, merciful and gracious. Those are uh, aspects of love. Mercy is grace in action. It's unmerited favor. God is good to them even though they do not deserve it. God blesses them even though they did not deserve it. He is merciful and gracious. He's long-suffering. He is patient with them. He is not harsh with them. He does not come down on them immediately. And he is abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty and visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. The point here is God is merciful and he is forgiving of iniquity and transgressions. This is not seen in other uh, pagan religions in the ancient Near East and it's not seen in liberalism. And liberalism doesn't have it because they don't have a view of sin. They believe man is basically good. And that's why they reject all of the notions in the Bible related to sacrifice necessary for the forgiveness of sin. So they have a completely fake view of God, which they then bring to the Bible and try to redefine Judeo-Christianity, biblical Judeo-Christianity. So I find more and more that... I don't want to talk about evangelical Christianity. I don't want to talk about Protestant Christianity. I want to talk about biblical Christianity. Are you a biblical Christian or not? And it brings it right back to that issue of authority. And that is the second aspect that is essential to Christianity, which is that God reveals himself in his word. So the first part is the foundation has to be God. The second part is the authority of Scripture. Mentioned this last time. We'll just look at these uh, texts again. In Second Peter 1, or let's start with Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Accomplished. Literally, every jot and tittle, as I pointed out, pointed out last week, a jot is about the size of an apostrophe. A tittle is a part of a letter like that which closes like the leg on an R, distinguishing a capital R from a capital P. 
Now, Jesus is talking about the Old Testament. What's funny is that you have people who want to redefine Christianity and say, we want to have the love of Jesus. Well, they want to be like Jesus, and they have all kinds of ideas of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, but if they're not biblical, then they've created an idol. They've created an emotional, subjective idol in their mind, and now they're trying to live up to this this uh, value that is just based on their own feelings, their own emotions, and their own subjectivity. Whereas Jesus is affirming the complete accuracy of the Old Testament, either you accept the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, as what it claims to be the entire Word of God, or reject all of it. You have no right to come in and take out a razor blade and decide which parts of it you're going to keep and which ones you won't keep. Now, I've been doing some some reading lately on Thomas Jefferson in preparation for <clears throat> what I hope will be a, a little, uh, at least one night special on the 4th of July on, on, on Jefferson. And I've had a copy since I was out of college on uh, uh, Jefferson's Bible. And I had been misled, as every one of you have been misled, into thinking that what Jefferson did was he took out his razor blade and removed every aspect of miracles and the supernatural from his Bible. And that's not true. I'll talk about that more when we are here on the 4th of July. But what he did was he, he, he was creating an abridged Bible. He did take out some miracles, but he left a lot in. He was creating an abridged Bible that would be used to introduce the Indians, uh, North American Indians, to Christianity. Now, he, I'm not saying he was a Christian, but he recognized that there was an ethical system in the Bible that was important for the stability of a nation and that this was a value and should be taught to the Indians. So um, there's been a lot of misrepresentation and misinformation about Jefferson. We'll get into more of that on the 4th of July. But that's liberalism removes all of that, that it's impossible to have miracles because there's no such thing as supernaturalism. That is their ultimate presupposition. So they reject the Bible, but they want to take some verses out of it. Every now and then somebody comments on my Facebook page, and they take passages of Scripture out of context. We have to be very careful to study every passage within its historical context. So Jesus says all of it, every bit of it, is inspired by God, breathed out by God. So you have to either accept it all or forget it all. Don't be a halfway Christian. Second Peter, at the end of Second Peter chapter 1, begins to shift his topic to as he's going to warn them about the false teachers. And he says, because we know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. What that means is that when someone made a prophecy, they didn't generate that privately. The Old Testament prophets received revelation from God. And that's what he explains in verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And then notice we have a chapter break there, so we lose the context. On the one hand, he says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's divine authority. It's absolute truth. But there were also false prophets among the people. What people? 
What's he talking about? He's going back to the Old Testament. There were false prophets among the Jewish people, among the Israelites, even as there will be false teachers among you. Notice he doesn't say there were false prophets then and there'll be false prophets now. Why? Because prophecy's not going to be part of the church age. Teaching is. This is a verse I've never seen anybody use as a support for the fact that prophecy and knowledge will cease. But that's what he is saying here. He's saying you had false prophets in the Old Testament, and watch out, false teachers are coming that will be among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves with destruction. So in verse in Second Peter one twenty twenty one clearly affirms that the origin of Scripture is the Holy Spirit written through human writers. And then Second Timothy three fifteen, where he talks about the sacred writings that Timothy grew up studying. That's the Old Testament scripture. And then he says in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God, not inspired like you might say Mozart was inspired to write his music or Shakespeare was inspired to write his um, his uh, plays and dramas and poetry. This is something that is breathed out by God, theopneustos in the Greek, and because its origin is from God, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we see that we start with God, a specific view of God as the creator, communicator, the holy God, the uh, God who is uh, the redeemer. And here we have... Uh, then second was that God speaks and he has communicated and his word is is accurate and infallible. And we get to the third point, is that Christianity is grounded on a specific declaration of redemption. There is a specific emphasis on redemption that cannot be watered down or diluted as it is in many modern approaches to redemption. It is a specific statement that is related to human beings who have sinned against God. And because they have sinned, they are under a penalty, and that penalty must be paid for. It is not something that is ambiguous. There is a necessity for a sacrifice to take place, whereas Modern man thinks that sacrifice is barbaric, uh, that a sacrifice is outdated. God would never do that. Well, how do you know that? Where are you getting this idea that God would never do that? You're just making that up because emotionally you don't like that idea. So you are basically in rebellion against God because you're emotionally upset. And that's what happens in modernism. If you reject reason as the basis for your living, the only thing you have left is emotion. And so you are driven by emotion, and emotion is always a self-destructive path for decision-making. Never make decisions on the basis of emotion. So in the Bible, man is fallen. He is corrupt. He is not sick. He is dead. He is spiritually dead and separated from God. And so it was necessary for 
for redemption to take place, for someone to die in his place. And so this centers redemption and the work of Christ on the cross as the very focus of biblical Christianity, that without a substitutionary sacrifice, there's no payment for sin. So the payment for sin, the work of Christ on the cross, is necessary in Christianity. And as a result of his death on the cross, it is necessary for a person to do something to be transformed into a spiritually alive person. Romans 3, 23 and 24, as I pointed out just a minute ago, says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We're all spiritually dead. And the only way to reverse that is through the redemption of Christ Jesus in the second part of Romans 3.24. The way to get that redemption applied is to be justified freely. That comes, as Paul develops it in Romans 4, on the pattern of Abraham. We are justified by faith alone as Abraham was. It also involves being made spiritually alive. This is what Jesus emphasizes in John 3, 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, and he's told Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There has to be spiritual regeneration. You have to go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, and that is something that only God can do. When it comes to redemption, it, it can only be accomplished through the sacrificial death of a qualified sacrifice. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. He is the perfect sacrifice. There is no redemption without that, and that's biblical Christianity. In Romans 5, 8, we learn that it is not contradictory to the love of God. The righteousness of God must be satisfied by that, by that sacrifice, and it is a demonstration of God's love to us that he pays the penalty. So Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus Christ, according to 1 John 2, 2, is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfies the righteousness and justice of God so that righteousness and justice and love in the, at, in the person of God are equally balanced. You do not have one overriding the other. And that comes again and again from Scripture. So John tells us in 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and then he connects that to the love of God. So the sacrifice of Jesus in John is equivalent to Romans 5, 8, the demonstration of God's love. In 1 John four ten, we read, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the righteousness of God and the love of God work and fit perfectly uh, together. And the way in which we receive that is by faith in Christ. Christ is the object 
of our faith as Christians. We trust in what he did and what he did on the cross so that Christianity is defined not only by the God that we have uh, believed in, that is a God who is the holy communicator. He is the God who is, I mean, excuse me, the creator communicator. He is the God who is a holy God. He is the God who is the redeemer and the God who is the forgiver, but that he is, he has spoken to us and what he has spoken has authority. That was the second point. And then this third point is he provides forgiveness because he has paid the penalty for sin, but that forgiveness is predicated on believing in Christ. So you cannot have Christianity without faith in Christ. Now, next time we'll come back and develop uh, three or four other basic areas that must be present to have the biblical faith that we are to contend for. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study, to reflect, to think about the core beliefs that we have, that that which is essential to Christianity that is part of your word from Genesis through Revelation, repeated again and again and again. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be strong in our faith, our trust in you. Our focus is upon your word and the absolute nature of your word, and that we might apply that in our own lives, that we might become more and more like Jesus Christ in our spiritual walk. We pray this in his name. Amen.